Welcome to Metal Injections, the Squared Circle Pit. Today's special guest from Dark Side of the Ring, Evan Husney. Here's your host, Rob Hospani. The birds are chirping. Spring is in full bloom. Welcome to another edition of Squared Circle Pit. Got a great show for you today. I am going to be interviewing the creator of the Viceland documentary. It actually just wrapped up. All the episodes are available for streaming. The documentary is called Dark Side of the Ring. The person I'm interviewing is called Evan Husney. And Evan's a cool dude. He did a great job with this documentary series. It's a six-part series. And every episode uh, explored, as the title suggests, a darker element of the pro wrestling world whether it be the relationship between Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth, the death of Bruiser Brody, which was absolutely heart-wrenching, the Von Erichs, Gino Hernandez, a lot of very, very interesting stories being covered. I interviewed Evan before the finale aired. The finale was on Fabulous Moolah. We did talk about Moolah a little bit, but we mostly stuck to the first five episodes. It's a great interview. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We also talk about how... Evan got into pro wrestling a little bit about his heavy metal fandom and how each informed the other. We talk about the soundtrack to Dark Side of the Ring, lots of cool stuff. And uh, overall, it's a pretty lengthy chat where we where we dive in deep. So I hope you enjoy it and stick around on the other end of the interview. I'm going to be talking about my thoughts on Money in the Bank, which just happened yesterday. And uh, and where the whole world of wrestling is now, a little uh, wrestling uh, recap, if you will. Of course, my name is Rob, and I'm going to be here with you all episode long, talking to Evan and talking everywhere. And you can follow me on social media at Rob Injection, Squared Circle Pit, also on Facebook and Twitter. On Twitter, there is no E in the circle in Squared Circle Pit. But right now, let's get to my interview with Evan. And afterwards, my thoughts on Money in the Bank. Now entering the Squared Circle Pit, one of the creators of Viceland's excellent new series, Dark Side of the Ring, Evan Husney. And Evan, thank you for taking some time to talk to me here on Metal Injection. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. And I want to I want to really dive deep into Dark Side of the Ring. It is a new document weekly documentary series. Every week it's chronicling a different story from pro wrestling's past that as the title suggests has a bit of darkness to it. But before we get to that, I'm curious about your wrestling fandom. Your Twitter avatar is, I'm assuming, a young you in a NWO shirt. <laughs> yep. When did you get into wrestling? Uh, the very first time I got into wrestling was, God, I think in 1991, if memory serves, when I was like five. I think I was five years old. And, and my parents took me to a WWF house show, which was leading up to the, um, the Hulk Hogan, Sergeant Slaughter, uh, WrestleMania, where if you remember, Sergeant awesome. Slaughter was like a... Uh, uh, Iraqi sympathizer. <laughs> right, yeah. So this is and around WrestleMania 7. That's right. Yep, yep. And I remember vividly as a kid, because I was a G.I. Joe fan before I was a wrestling fan as a kid. And so Sergeant, seeing Sergeant Slaughter to me in the flesh was, like, incredible. That's all I cared about. I didn't know who Hulk Hogan was, you know. And I was, like, the only... I, like, when Hulk Hogan started beating up Sergeant Slaughter, I started to cry. Like, who is this weird bald guy trying to, you know 
attack the GI Joe, and I was crying, and my parents were like, "Oh my God, our our our, our child doesn't understand how this is all working," you know, because he was a heel at that point. So that's kind of where my wrestling fandom started. Was like all the way back then, and of course it ebbed and flowed as time went on, and. I got into, you know, as soon as the Attitude Era and the Monday Night Wars were, you know, going on, I was a huge fan of both products, WCW and WWF. And then probably around like later high school years, ECW started to be a thing that I got obsessed with and used mm-hmm. to be able to buy bootleg tapes at ECW matches at the at like the local mall. So yeah, wrestling's been <clears throat> a huge part of my um, huge part of my life ever since I've been small child. So you dipped your toe with that house show, Seeing Sergeant yeah. Slaughter, and then yeah. you really got into it in the late nineties. Uh, oh yeah, so, yeah, for sure. Right on, and and I'm happy to hear that you are a, a heavy metal fan as well. Yes. Which hit you first, the wrestling fandom or, or heavy metal? Um, you know, it's it's interesting because I mean, obviously, when I was five, I didn't know much about metal, but. Um, right. going into like the late nineties, I, I have like, that's right around the same time I started to play guitar and I, and I've been playing guitar ever since I've been 11. And so right around that time, you know, wrestling had this kind of like, you know, metal kind of connection. And I definitely would cite my love of wrestling to getting more into metal. Cause I totally remember like watching ECW and then hearing Pantera, you know, for the first time. Or, you know, Metallica or whatever. And that's and those bands, obviously, and Slayer, you know, are like the bands that when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, I was really into. And, and of course, tried to learn all those songs on guitar and stuff. So, yeah. That's awesome that you, that you, that you say that because I, I've often said the same thing, that wrestling is what, what got me into metal and, and rock in general with like DDP coming out to that nirvana sound alike and i was yep. like oh what is this nirvana band i gotta <laughs> i gotta check that's out. amazing and, that's amazing so so yeah i totally had a very similar trajectory and ecw to me was like the most metal thing and it, it was like i felt like it was like the one wrestling organization that was made specifically for me and it was so like it had the punk rock edge you had to like seek it out and in new york it was on at three in the morning you know it's, mm-hmm. you had to you had to come to them they wouldn't come to you yeah i remember I, another memory I have is like right around the time when I was first figuring out what ECW was. <clears throat> I think I was flipping through channels on like this TV set I had in my room. And I remember like landing on some weird channel and it was, and I actually grew up in Minneapolis. So this is even weirder because it's not in the East coast, but I remember just flipping through the channels and landing on some scrambled station, but hearing, couldn't see anything, but hearing it was wrestling. And then I noticed that they were dropping f bombs, like you know, in the in the program. Like, what is this? And that's how I started to realize that oh my god, there's like this really crazy, you know, other separate organization I had no idea about, and that that changed everything for me. Then, like I said, going to the mall and buying all these uh, bootleg tapes, and you know, watching the Sabu Terry Funk barbed wire ring rope match. I was way too young to be seeing something like that. At least that's the way I felt. <laughs> I, I, I mean. Even now, I feel it's hard to watch. <laughs> it's brutal. It's so brutal. Yeah. Uh, and then, but love it. So obviously, the fun of being a wrestling fan isn't just what's happening on the television, but what's happening behind the scenes. When would you say you kind of got smartened up to the backstage gossip? Like when? When would you say you started following that sort of stuff? If you, ooh, good question. I have a funny story kind of about that. Um, 
uh, I don't know if this totally answers it, but it's kind of worth sharing. Um, <clears throat> so when I was like, again, Attitude Era 1998, my dad had actually worked for, if you remember, Sam Goody. Did you guys have Sam yeah. Goody? Absolutely. Okay, so he was like a VP at, at Sam Goody at the at, like at the time. And they were doing this promotion with Stone Cold Steve Austin had like a CD that was coming out of like his favorite rock and metal songs. I don't know if you remember this. I do. It was like Stone Cold Crazy, I think it was called. Or, or something, like that. something like that. You know, just, yeah, you know, still, you know yeah. it had Slow Ride on it and like, you know. Yeah, uh, I remember it had Metallica covering Queen just because of the Stone Cold Crazy did it crossover I yeah so. or, or maybe there was another one i'm not remember i thought yeah and i, I know i had stranglehold it was more like Let me 70s look it up. radio Let me look it up. yeah 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 you should look it up but regardless you know that was at my peak wrestling fandom time period and so i remember being like dad you gotta you know you gotta get me to meet stone cold you know or whatever and somehow he was able to make it work you know which was insane so steve austin came to the mall of america where I was growing up, <laughs> LOL. And uh, yeah, I got this opportunity to actually meet Steve Austin as a, you know, a 12, 13 year old kid or whatever at the height of, you know, the Monday Night Wars. And <clears throat> I remember just like, there's actually a video of it. I have it on my, on, on my Vimeo, I think, or something. And I, I got to go up to him and ask him, which no, because, you know, WWF never mentioned WCW really on their programs, hardly ever. You know, um, and so I, I, I wanted to ask Steve as a kid, I wanted to ask him, what what did you think of Bill Goldberg? You know, I wanted to know what he thought of like this kind of imitation, you know, pretty bald. controversial uh, question at the time, because they yeah. were like, like Goldberg kind of there was accusations that he was stealing Austin's gimmick because they both wore the black tights and the pants. Exactly. So you can go um, I can I can send you the link to it. But basically. I asked him as like a kid, you know, and I, I obviously was super nervous, so it's pretty hilarious to watch now. But, you know, he actually dealt with it so well. He was like, you know, um, I think he's fine at what he does, but, you know, he does a good job at imitating me. But, you know, he's got to make a living, too, or so whatever the hell he said. <laughs> but that was kind of my first shoot interview, you know, was doing that <laughs> as a kid. Uh, but it was cool because that was kind of like the first time as a kid where it's like, well, you know, these guys don't hate each other. You know, it's. It's kind of like a job at the end of the day. And, of course, you always grow up knowing that it's a work in some ways, you know, uh, especially yeah. in, our, in, our, in our generation. And, um, and so, but then it wasn't really till later on, like, when I was doing more documentary stuff for, for a living and just sort of going back and, you know, you always go through these periods of being a fan. I feel like, you know, and, and I really got back into wrestling huge probably i would say like six or seven years ago um excuse me and uh uh like going back in like di like digging into the territory era and and digging into like japan in the 80s all the stuff that you didn't know about as a kid and then of course going on youtube and seeing all of these shoot interviews and all these crazy stories being told by these old timers you know and 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 that's kind of the rabbit hole that i started to go down um you know several like you know six or seven years ago and then, then I was like, all right, someone's got to take these stories and, you know, put them on like a bigger stage because they're all like just shot in like a hotel room with like a backdrop, you know? Right. It's, like it's just like RF video, like single cam shot. And, and you exactly. really have to 
get past the low production value because the content, I agree with you. I'm, I'm right there with you watching yeah. those shoot interviews. Just like it's so good. And, and what they're talking about is insane. Some of these stories. Exactly. So, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. You're going to say uh, what, what I was going to ask is. Uh, so you said you had uh, you did you like go to school for documentary making or filmmaking? Like, how um, did that interest come about? Well, so, you know, yeah, so I was, you know, uh, an aspiring professional metalhead, you know, as a kid, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as like a guitar player and got really into, you know, just Megadeth and Slayer and Metallica, like I was telling you about. Did you and have then, bands? Uh, Were you in bands? I I was, but nothing nothing crazy. You know, okay. I, I, I was playing... And but then right around the same time I was, you know, trying to do that, I, I really got like bit by the filmmaking bug and really got into movies like huge, like obviously horror movies, because, you know, that's the next trajectory from from metal. You know, yeah. as you get into wrestling, all the, like, metal, horror. It's like, yeah, the trifecta. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I worked at video stores. That was all like from 16 to 22, 21. That's all like the jobs. All the jobs I had was either video stores or movie theaters. And, mm-hmm. but it was predominantly movies or sorry, it was predominantly video stores. And so, so would this be also, like blockbuster or like local, local stores, all different kinds. I mean, okay, I, everything. <laughs> I, I worked at Suncoast, which is another LOL. If you remember that, that was like Definitely, the same goodie yeah. of, you know, that was my first video store job, but then it was mom and pop stores. And then as I got older into my like late teens, early twenties, I worked at this store called Amoeba Music in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and I worked there for two years. Always just like getting huge into movies. I went to college uh, for a few years uh, for actually film directing, which I actually dropped out of. <laughs> and then, um, and then I moved to New York City. Sound financial investment there. Yeah, it actually was. It actually was great. Um, and then I moved to New York City, where I started working for uh, Troma. If you know that company, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Toxic Avenger and all that. I survived that company for two years, which is which is a, a, many years in trauma years, and um, <laughs> and then and then from there I actually just got uh, I just went from company to company, kind of moved up, and was working for film distribution for seven years. I, I wound up going to a company called Severin Films, and then I went on to uh, the Alamo Draft House and worked for them for two years, um, and then landed at Vice in two thousand fourteen. When uh, and I was helping them, they wanted to get into film production, film distribution. So I, I kind of was part of the Gen One of that. And then I saw this opportunity with Vice to start producing my own stuff and, and making my own documentaries, short short form stuff. And um, and so I was doing that for a little bit. Then Vice launched their this this uh, TV network called Viceland, and it was right at that time when I was getting back into wrestling again in like a big way. And uh, I, this is like, you know, 2015 or, you know, late 2015 or whatever. And uh, was the, there anything that triggered that? I'm Getting back remember. into it? I'm trying to remember. Um, maybe just like, you know, uh, well, yes, actually. Sorry. Yes. So, so uh, Jason Eisner, who directed uh, the first season of Dark Side of the Ring, he and I had been, you know, friends. Uh, we became kind of best friends around, tw- you know, 2011, 12. And we both, you know, grew up with this passion for wrestling, you know, same kind of trajectory. And um, 
and so we kind of were both getting back into it. Like we, you know, we would go back and, you know, go on the network and watch the '80s stuff that we remember, the '90s stuff that we remember. But then at the same time, I think we both were kind of getting into the like YouTube shoot interview mm-hmm. thing, and then you know passing the links around to each other. And that's when we both were like, "Hey, do you know about this Bruiser Brody story?" And that was kind of the first one where it was like, "Oh man, this is like a big story, like bigger than wrestling type story." Where here's a guy. Well, first off, look at Bruiser Brody. How fucking cool is he? You know, like holy shit. Right. And like watching all this old footage of him just swinging chains and you know swinging <laughs> chains into people and kicking people in the face, you know, and all this stuff. And you're like, <laughs> wow, this guy. Like, if anyone is legitimate in this business, it's him, you know. And so, um, so anyway, so we got obsessed with Bruiser Brody, like just as as a person, like as a as a as a force of nature, you know. And then um, we looked into, like, his death, you know, and just how tragic and insane and, like, what? Like, how come this isn't, like, huge news? Like, how come this never really was covered by mainstream media? And how come this isn't something that my generation, you know, is familiar with? This should be, like, you know, a a major, you know, this this should be the Dimebag Daryl death of, you know, of of wrestling or something. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, And just if you're you're listening and you have... Have not happened to see uh, the episode about Bruiser Brody. Uh, what happened was he was discussing a match with his opponent, and then conflicting reports. But basically, the guy stabbed him, and then there was a huge cover up of of his death. And that's all you know alleged in terms of the cover up. But essentially, Bruiser Brody was wrestling in Puerto Rico. You know, as you said, and uh, he had a long standing kind of grudge with his, with the person that allegedly had murdered him. Mm-hmm. And uh, things exploded in the locker room right right before the you know a a match was to go on, and he was stabbed, and um, and it, it took several hours for him to get proper medical treatment, and they actually lost him in the middle of the night. And it's this crazy story, and just really wasn't covered by mainstream media at all. And so we got kind of just we just kept digging into this and seeing what evidence, what information you know translating you know puerto rican newspapers and trying to figure out more stuff and then we pitched it to vice as like a a documentary but it proved to be too ambitious for the vice.com digital web documentary department i was working in and vice land the the tv network had just started so i said well maybe this could be a tv show and maybe we kind of package it like unsolved mysteries meets wrestling because there's enough of these stories of like crazy controversial stories that have t- that have taken place in in the world of wrestling and we can just try and you know get to the truth get to the bottom of it but at the same time also like show how nobody can agree on the truth and the history of wrestling everyone has their own take you know and, and just you know and kind of lean into that like lean into the to the shoot interview aspect of wrestling but then also blow it out and then you know make you know reenactments and <laughs> that whole thing. Yeah, I have to say the reenactments. Uh, at first, when I first saw like the the trailer or like a teaser that Vice put out, it like I was worried it would be a little cheesy. You know, I I didn't know totally. who you were, yeah. and like <laughs> you know, I feel like with wrestling coverage in the mainstream, it's it's very hit or miss, and most of the time it's a miss because they don't really know what the yeah. the subject matter is. But like obviously this series that you guys have done comes from a, a, a like a place of love and and the the way you treat all these stories with the respect it's it's very gripping and impressive and 
uh, I feel like I, I've watched it with people who aren't necessarily wrestling fans, and they, they would get sucked into some of the stories. Well, thank uh, and you. I, yeah, and th- sorry to cut you off. That's yeah, exactly. Sure, that's exactly the reason why you know we wanted to make it, and like the best compliments that we've gotten, or the best compliments we've received from from people is like, you know, oh, I was able to show this, you know documentary series to my you know to my family friends significant others or whoever you know doesn't you know share my passion for wrestling but it doesn't matter because now they see and they understand you know why i like wrestling and why it's special and that's my that's we we really tried to engineer each episode and and it was really hard but we tried to engineer each one so it could be appealing to people who just didn't who don't who don't care about wrestling you know, How did you was... come up with the uh, unsolved mysteries, as, like the reenact? Because I feel like nobody yeah. really does that anymore. That was a. I feel like <laughs> you would see that a lot in the like late '80s, early '90s, totally. even beyond unsolved mysteries. Just when talking about these true crimes, uh, and I, I think you guys did a, a did it very tastefully. I love how it's always out of focus. The mm-hmm. actors portraying these wrestlers, you don't really see their face, so you could believe that the scene you're creating actually happened. Yeah, there's a really nerdy, funny story behind how we came up with it. Reenactments, you know, pop up every once in a while in documentary stuff, mostly true crime stuff, right? And, mm-hmm. like, you see it, you know, obviously in Unsolved Mysteries, it's funny to watch, go back and watch. It, I mean, I actually love it. Right, show. it's almost become like a parody. Yeah, uh, it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, but, like, there's uh, HBO's The Jinx kind of has them and does them very tastefully. Mm-hmm. Um, Netflix has this show that just came out um, last year called The Innocent Man, or it was earlier this year, which I thought did a tremendous job at doing reenactments very tastefully. But anyway, um, we are huge fans of this 80s documentary, um, which is very critically uh, acclaimed, um, called uh, The Thin Blue Line, mm-hmm. which is by Earl Morris. And it's, it's, it's about this uh, guy who was wrongfully convicted for the murder of this police officer. And uh, the way that the documentary is done is so technically sound. I mean, it is the gold standard. I mean, you know, anyone in the field knows knows it. Um, and it's just the way that they do the reenactments in this sort of like impressionistic film noir kind of, um, you know, just, it just looks so cool. And like and, and like the way that they kind of do it with stark lighting and you know, harsh shadows and people's faces are blacked out and, you know, and, and then of course, like the music, which is Philip Glass for that, you know, documentary, you know, really carries the momentum of the storytelling. And that's something that we really wanted to do is we wanted to like have like a score that really kind of drove just the like, just we, we like we wanted each episode to move very fast because obviously you have to you know cover tons of stuff in only 44 minutes. But then also like have an approach to reenactments that could help fill in the gaps where you know you can't get archival footage or you can't you know have anything else kind of cover it. You know, so the idea for the reenactments of how we would do them stylistically came about like in the nerdiest way, which was. Um, at first, we were going to do them more traditionally, where we'd like show up on location and try and get period cars and period costumes and make it as accurate as possible, which I think is a recipe for failure because it's so hard, you know. But what what we figured out is <laughs> we had just gone to this like flea market and bought these old AWA wrestling figures, um, which were like I think I think they were the Road Warriors ones that we that we had just got, and we and we were like 
uh, uh, Jason, my partner, and I were, you know, we like turned off the lights and we got out a flashlight. <laughs> we decided to take slow mo Instagram videos of our awesome new figures, you know, <laughs> just so we could post it on Instagram as like a story. And we like took out spray bottles and like sprayed them down to make them look sweaty, you know, and like did these like you know, Instagram, you know, slow-mo videos with like this like flashlight lighting. And then all of a sudden it was like this eureka moment while we're being like total dorks with our toys and being like, oh my God, like we could do this with actors, you know, and just make it seem like it's in this kind of like black void kind of, you know, dark, you know, noirish kind of world and like really minimally production design it and then just have these lights kind of going over all the characters and do it all in slow motion and that's just how it all kind of came about was actually playing with our wrestling figures. <laughs> I did want to mention the music, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. I thought it was like I love the synth wave score and it, it adds so much drama, especially like at these big crescendos when when some crazy part of the story is revealed. Yeah. So you're saying well, these were all original scores like who, who did the music? Yep. Every piece of music in in the uh, episode. Uh, or I'm sorry, in all the episodes, wall to wall is uh, all original music uh, composed by um, two friends of ours in Toronto. Uh, one of the or their names are um, Andrew Gordon McPherson and Wade McNeil. And Wade McNeil is known for being in uh, one of Canada's uh, most infamous bands, uh, um, Alexis on Fire. And um, Anyway, uh, they just did a tremendous oh, wow. job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's from that. He's from Alexis on Fire, and they they just did it like an, an incredible job. Because um, we actually did Bruiser Brody as a pilot first. That was that was done as sort of the proof of proof of concept episode, and then once we got greenlit for the full season, you know, they came on board and did all the music, and um, they just churned out like I don't know. I think it was like seventy somewhere between seventy five and ninety different tracks for the whole show. Um, and you know, every episode kind of has like a different flavor, which is just amazing. And they just got way into it, you know, and you know, like, oh man, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's very intense. You know, some people are like, why is the music so intense? You know? And it's like, well, that's what we wanted to do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're intense stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Like, you know, like the, the whole scene when like, you know, uh, Bruce Pritchard is talking about the mega powers and it's like, we wanted to have this like ridiculous song, <laughs> <laughs> you know, playing, but those guys just were, are able to do anything, any style of music, any type of thing. And, and they just kind of ran wild with it. And I mean, I think it's such a huge defining, you know, uh, aspect of the show is to be able to have that, you know, and they just did an incredible job. Yeah. Can't so I, there, there have been uh, like five or six episodes so far. How many? No, five, I guess. And then there's yep. six total in the season. Uh, we're taping this before the Moolah episode. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then there were there were four others you made, right? That like they, they might air or, or there's no. But how long did all of these take? Like, what was, how many years did this whole thing take? Well, the whole, like, kind of process is, was, um, I think I pitched the show, I want to say, at the end of 2016. I think it was, like, September of 2016 is when I pitched the idea for the show. And then we got rolling with the pilot in, like, middle of 2017, I want to say. And we mm -hmm. filmed and we filmed Brody from like middle of 2017 to the end of the year. And then we got going on the full series uh, February of last year till about November of last year. Oh, so you guys have been moving fast. 
It was pretty quick, yeah. And 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 uh, originally we were gonna do eight episodes, and um, <clears throat> you know, just the world of production, things change, and you know, um, you gotta you gotta you know you you, you have a strict budget, mm-hmm. and and we kind of had to make a pivot towards the end um, in order to kind of you know make sure that we didn't shortchange the other episodes that we had to stop production on two of the episodes we were we were in production on. And, um, oh, so there's there's two other ones. Not there's there. there's two other ones, but they're not done. I mean, I one, what were those stories? One of them, I think, was Dino Bravo, right? Correct. Like like uh, uh, we did a Dino Bravo episode. Um, you know, he he was a wrestler who also died under pretty extreme circumstances. He was executed uh, <laughs> by the criminal underworld in his own living room. Yeah, pretty, uh, that, that yeah. story's nuts. <laughs> it is. It is, and it was crazy to make too. It was really really crazy to make. Um, but we, we shot most of, I would say it's missing like one interview that I would like to do. And mm-hmm. then we didn't do any of the reenactments for it. So that's like, it's everything else is there though. It's all there. It's all done. We, we spoke mm-hmm. to Dino's family, um, and they were incredible. And, uh, so that, that episode's like pretty near done or close to it. And then, uh, we did an episode, uh, more so just to kind of like the idea of it was to kind of, um, you know, show something a little lighter, I guess, <laughs> even though it's right. still kind of disturbing, but more on the lighter side where all the other episodes were so heavy and we wanted to have something that would be a little bit more humorous, uh, which was the uh, episode about the brawl for all was what we were going to do. <laughs> uh, I see. Yeah, definitely not as controversial. No, nothing it, is. Yeah. Nobody died. <laughs> Nobody died, but people got hurt. But yeah. <clears throat> and, and for those who don't know, the brawl for all was this very bizarre idea that that the, that the WWF at the time wanted to do which was to in the middle of Monday Night Raw every week they had this thing called the Brawl for All tournament which was supposed to be a non-scripted 100% for real uh shoot fight or you know like MMA style boxing matches between like all the guys in the locker room who thought they were you know the toughest guy in real life so and, and people got hurt cuz no one knew how to like train or fight properly <laughs> you know so and it yeah. just made wrestling look bad you know it's like well if this is real then what's wrestling um yeah and and that and, and we were sort of gonna you know and and we'll still do it if if you know if the season two you know happens but you know th- the way it was shaping up was was amazing i'll just tell you i'll just tell you that like the interviews we had gotten thus far for that episode it was it was gonna be <laughs> like you know like the comedy episode for sure you know that's that's cool i i I mean if it's any like i have to say also i don't remember crying this much watching any other (laughs) wrestling documentary and a few of these yeah it was it was and and, you know even with the brody story if if i we can dive into some of the episodes let's start with whatever you want yeah yeah uh first off like i I've watched some of the shoot interviews. I've seen some of the clips, but like, I've never seen the story put together the way you did it. Mm. And I, I never realized what a fucking hundred percent mega baby face Tony Atlas was. And, and like how, you know, you can't, I can't ever really say a bad thing about him ever again because of how he acted in that crazy moment of like mm-hmm. lifting him up and, and, you know, like using his true, uh, power to like get this man to a hospital and get him some help uh but the part that absolutely broke my heart in that whole thing was 
uh, the story of how Brody's wife learned was just by spotting Abdullah the Butcher in the airport, running out, like fleeing Puerto Rico, yeah. and him having to break the news to her. Like, that yeah. crushed me. That yeah. crushed me. It's brutal, yeah. Um, so, obviously, yeah, Tony <clears throat> does an incredible job uh, in, in the episode. Um, just, you know, and, and, and I can say from firsthand experience, like, you know, his PTSD, you know, is real from that story. Like, he while we were doing both of the interviews because uh, we interviewed him two different se- separate times for the for the episode and he you know he was back in that locker room you know he was he was he was he was living it again and it, and it definitely wasn't easy for him um and uh to mention abdullah you know it, it was tricky because on the pilot episode you know you have kind of a more scaled down budget than you would mm-hmm. if you're going into the full season and so we only really had the means to interview four people or at least travel to four different places to do the interviews. So we had to be very selective over who we interviewed. And it was re- like the Abdullah the Butcher slot in in the episode was 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 widely debated between us. Like, oh, you know, like because there's so many other people you could talk to, you know, um, like you could talk to, uh, you know, Stan Hansen, you know, who was his <clears throat> tag team partner for so many years and stuff like that. But Abdullah the Butcher being just such a wild character, you know, um, and also being a fixture of that story. Like, he was there. He wasn't in the locker room when it happened, but he was in Puerto Rico. And then the fact that you have that story where he actually, the irony of him being Brody's greatest in-ring nemesis, but then also being the person that informed his wife you know, that he had passed away, that, that, that Brody had passed away is, is just like, you can't write Stunning. it. Yeah, yeah. You can't write it. And, and, and that the only, yeah. like they never met. No, the, just his wife recognized him from their feud. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, like I had to pause the documentary cause it, it blew my mind, you know, like it was just, it's this is in, this, like, you couldn't write something like that in a movie. It, it was, it was wild. I know <laughs> it's, 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 it's one of those things you just don't see coming. Um, and what for, was it hanging know. out with Abdullah too? Because I like I, I think I saw in another interview he said he was a little more reserved at first, right? Ah, uh, well, that's a way to put it mildly. Um, <laughs> you know, for anyone that doesn't know, Abdullah the Butcher is like a very old school, you know, carny, you know, type of persona, and you know, he—I mean, he is like one of the scarier-looking individuals. You know, <laughs> in wrestling, yeah, he looks like a caricature of a wrestler, basically. Well, he's just like you know his. his his, his his forehead is so scarred that you could literally like balance poker chips inside of the scar hole, you know. <laughs> but he, he also wrestled back in the late fifties. I mean, this guy goes back. It's pretty impressive. Um, but anyway, uh, he's just been everywhere, and you know, our experience kind of talking to a lot of the the old timers, as you call it, like people of that his generation. It's it's you know they for for decades had to, um, you know protect the business from people from outsiders like myself you know they they that was a that was like the code the like uh the um omerta if you will you know Mm -hmm. of wrestling like they had to protect you know this you know from outsiders and so there was very much traces of that when we would show up to people like you know abdullah's house or whatever and and talk to these guys about like the business and it's like oh these guys are sizing us up they're kind of trying to be intimidating still. And that was very much the case with Abdullah. And it really wasn't <laughs> until, <clears throat> you know, he kind of, you know, like we saw him kind of putting up this facade of, you know, kind of 
trying to intimidate us. And it, and we kind of had the idea of, all right, let's just take a break. And we showed him some footage of Bruiser Brody, like some old 80s footage of him. And mm-hmm. showed him footage of their matches, which he probably hasn't seen in many years. And that sort of kind of, you know, unlocked a more emotional side of Abdullah. <laughs> which right, because these wrestlers aren't watching their, their old matches. It's not like no. he puts that on every day. No. So, yeah, I could, yeah. I could totally see that. And that kind uh, of, you know, got him to be a little bit more forthright about stuff. Yeah. I see. And that, that, that brings up a question I had, too. I noticed you, you would doctor the footage and add, like, you know, pixelation effects to it. Am I right to assume that those were mostly just like YouTube rips and whatever? Like you didn't license this footage. Yeah, you didn't license it from WWE or anything like that. Well, there's like footage from, you know, so many different sources, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's, it's from all different types of places. And, you know, I can't stand in a documentary when you have, at least, you know, we tried our hardest, but when you have the YouTube pixelation, you know, in like a in like a in like a in like a film, you know. Right. So, yeah, it's so clear. It's just a rip of YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. So what we did is we tried to make everything uniform, and we we ran everything through an old television set, and then we filmed everything off of an old television set to try and like give all the archival sort of like a uniform. Ah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I I, I thought it was a nice, nice stylistic stuff. choice. Yeah. yeah. Um. And the it was. I, I feel like there could be a whole other series made just in Jim Cornette's attic <laughs> of him going through his stuff. Yeah. What was that experience like hanging out with him for a few hours? Because it seemed like he was pretty forthcoming with oh, yeah. anything yeah. you would you would want to ask him. Yep. No, Jim is definitely one of my uh, one of the one of the best moments. Um or just one of the one of the coolest guys, you know, like uh out of the whole bunch to hang out with and to and to work on this show with. Um uh jim we actually went to his house two separate occasions during while we were shooting this and this i remember the second time came back to his house we're just like oh you know we're home we're back home you know because it's just like this is really the coolest house like he just has such a you know it's it it, it, it's actually the house i think he was born in you know which is crazy it's like what you know he actually grew up in that house and um he actually pointed to the spot where he saw his first wrestling match on TV in whatever year that was, you know. And uh, I think then, like, his, his his mother, I think, like, lost control of the house or sold it. And then he got it back. Like, he, he bought it back. And so, so – and then he did some additions. And then every room, you know, like, he and his wife have just sort of, like uh, – interior designed each room just to be so cool like it looks amazing like he'll have like a room with a bar that just looks super cool the upstairs attic where all of his wrestling collection is like you actually have to like open like a mirror to go in there like it's kind of oh wow yeah it's pretty amazing and then like you just go up there and you're like your jaw drops because you can't believe just a how much stuff is up there and it's very well organized and it just keeps going and going and going and you're like oh my god this is like this is insane you know, um, and um, so yeah, just as a fan, just to be thumbing through stuff, you know, 
the, in, in, up there was like, you know, man, I wish I would have had, you know, more time to do that. Now, Jim Cornette revealed a, a pretty huge fact to you guys that he was involved with the screw job. And and I feel like the Montreal screw job episode in general is the most talked about one. Like he, he did a whole podcast on it. Him and Meltzer are talking about it. <laughs> is it kind of trippy to you that like this this piece that you created is now in wrestling gossip canon as something to be discussed? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely flattering. And I, I love that, um, you know, like anytime that there's kind of, you know, wavering opinions, you know, on the, on our episodes, if someone's like, ah, so-and-so is lying or blah, that's not true. Or, you know, or kind of, you know, discrediting things or, you know, or, 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 you know, or, or, or the opposite people, you know, taken to heart a lot of this stuff. I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And that's really kind of what we wanted to do because not many of the episodes really leave you with a conclusion, you know, and that was kind of one of the, one of, you know, that's, that's, that's intentional. And some, and some of these stories, you just, you know, we just don't know, like, you know, we weren't in the locker room, you know, when the Brody thing happened, you know, we weren't right. in Gino's apartment when, you know, Gino died and things like that. So you kind of are left with, you know, people kind of piecing other information together. And I love how, Sometimes when, when 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 people get so into the episodes that they like catch something and then they're like, oh, well, maybe that means this or, you know, you know, or whatever. So right, right, right. I think there's a lot to left for people to chew on. And well, I, I want to hit you with one of those right now, actually. OK, because, uh, sure. Uh, in the Montreal Screwjob episode. Sure. One of the parts that kind of like. uh stood out to me i would say sure first of all you interviewed scott hall which to me <laughs> like scott hall is like one of the coolest fucking people so like just that you got to hang out with him seems oh yeah awesome. he's great <laughs> great dude great dude yeah uh and he, the controversial part came when he was kind of the vehicle to get across the narrative of the people that think <laughs> that this whole thing was a work and you have him watching the match the montreal screwjob and he's picking out all of these things like oh it's a work of course because why would vince allow the camera to zoom on zoom in on him getting spit and show the wcw footage and now when i was listening a little bit to Meltzer and Cornette talk about this stuff they claim that that footage that you showed of him spitting on vince is from the beyond uh, wrestling beyond mm -hmm. shadow wrestling yeah. with shadows documentary yep yep, yep. so is I mean, that what, what was going on in that scene well, uh, that for, okay. Well, let me let me just go back to how Scott Hall got to be in it, if you want to know. Which is yeah, kind of, absolutely which is because that's kind another of thing. People are like, why is Scott Hall in this episode? <laughs> well, obviously, you know, if you're interviewing one person about another episode, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. you know you say, "Oh, we're doing a Montreal Screwjob thing." I'm like, "Oh, I got something to say about that," you know. Um, right. So it's 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 no more crazy than that, you know. You're you're. you're you know, you're you're there with this person. You might as well get a two for one, you know. Um, so anyway, um, but uh, for, for whatever reason, I think I was at like a fan con or something. And um, I had gone down there to see Mick, I think. And mm -hmm. Scott was there. And somehow I had gotten into a conversation with Scott Hall about Brody. And Scott had had like, you know, he actually wrestled Brody once, like when he first started out. And it was just a really cool crazy story i love hearing anything about brody and then like mm -hmm. that turned into having sushi with scott hall somehow <laughs> oh wow and so then it was me and my girlfriend and scott and his lady friend and we were there for like two and a half hours like literally just while he was waiting for you know to go to the airport 
And uh, we talked about everything. And then it kind of came up where it's like, you know, we're doing this Randy Savage thing, you know, and then we're going to do this Montreal Screwjob episode. And he was like, total work is what he said. And I, I was like, <laughs> what? Like, honestly, <clears throat> I really hadn't heard that many people who really at that point believed that this thing wasn't because I was, you know, you watch wrestling with shadows and yeah. You know, blah blah blah, and so it I was seems like, like an open and shut case, especially reason reading Bret Hart's book. It's like no way, no way, this is a work. Oh but yeah, no, be, or else it would be the greatest thing. It would be the greatest thing ever. Um, yeah. And so anyway, so Scott went into like saying everything he says in the episode about it, and I'm scratching my head, being like, you know, man, you're so close to Shawn Michaels. Like how how has this never come up? You know, right. Um, <laughs> Like, the next day, how did he not call Shawn Michaels and be like, what the fuck is going on? Exactly. <clears throat> and so part of me is kind of like, well, the, it's hard to convey this because, you know, we don't put ourselves in each episode. But um, it's like it almost it would have been good for that moment because it's like, you know, when these guys are telling you stuff sometimes, especially people from that generation, sometimes it can be a work. You know, they're 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 mm -hmm. working you just like, you know, anything else. And so, right. and, and that could be what's happening here, you know, maybe, or maybe he really believes it, or maybe he's just misunderstanding. And in all those years he's seen the footage, he's thought that that was part of the broadcast, you know, which is a compelling argument if that were true. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't quote me, but I believe that Brett's WCW call sign was in the original broadcast of mm -hmm. Survivor, Survivor Series. I think it was. I think it might have been um, as well, but the spit definitely the spit was not. No, that no, that I know, and so you know, obviously, like you know, I'm not trying to like gotcha here. I'm just no, curious, no, no, no. Like, I definitely, like, I definitely thought about this. I know. I, I mean, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We made that decision to put it in. You know, um, yeah. And but it is, it is kind of one of those things where it's like you know, kind of left in for people to to consider, and obviously for hardcore wrestling fans like you or me, right. It's it it is preposterous almost to a degree to think that this thing could have been executed so perfectly that it would be a work <laughs> to this day, right? But <clears throat> the thing that's interesting about it is I think you have to talk about how because this whole episode, obviously, like I mentioned in the beginning of the interview, that we try to design every episode to be appealing to non fans, right? Like we have to try and mm -hmm. take a very nuanced story probably the most nuanced wrestling story of all time when a lot of details about contracts and dates and you know a lot of just like minutiae that you have to kind of get across that isn't really compelling to an average viewer to be fair and the other thing is is that like this ep this event in wrestling history you know is kind of the last big thing that happened that kind of blew open the like backstage you know like blew open the curtain to be like, okay. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So it's like... Yeah, I agree. When you're... I think it got a lot more people into the inside oh, yeah. aspect of wrestling. Because I remember even at the time, I wasn't really in no, the... Like, yeah. I was just a kid. But even it, that news got to me the week before. Like, Brett's leaving. Brett's leaving. There's going to be some crazy shit. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, it, like, it's, just, it's just like Jim Cornette said. It's like, well, maybe you didn't believe in the action all the time. Like, you didn't believe in all the moves. But you always believed mm -hmm. in the characters. Like, the characters still felt very real. Um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, this story to me, like, if you're trying to explain it to someone who doesn't know anything about wrestling, you know, you have to explain the idea of a work versus a shoot, you know? 
And this episode is kind of the best example of a work versus a shoot or, you know, Mm -hmm. a work that worked itself into a shoot, you know, or vice versa, you know? Um, And then at the same time to kind of also bring it one step further and to say, well, all this could be a work, you know, like that's how crazy this whole, uh, this whole incident has been viewed over the years. It's important to give that sort of context. And it's it, it, like, you know, the feedback that we've gotten from people who knew nothing about this, maybe they've heard of Bret Hart once in their life, you know, but then they look at this and it's like that aspect of like, holy shit, if this could be something orchestrated, that would be insane, you know, or the possibility yeah. of that existing. So to us, it was kind of this like more entertaining thing to add because you never see it be part of the story, um, you know, and, and, and I also think like with documentary and this is my opinion, you know, <clears throat> not everything you choose to put in a documentary necessarily has to be, you know, um, like you're watching the news, you know, where it's like, um, you know, some like the concept of truth. Now I'm getting nerdy film shit, but the, con- no, go for it. The, the like concept of truth in documentary isn't necessarily like, you know, me presenting to you that the screw job is 100 percent of work. Right. But it's. It's more those like blurred aspects of truth where it's like, you know, this is a truth that exists in terms of this individual, whether he's telling the truth yeah. or not, it exists that this is something that he's putting forth to you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and yeah, it's, yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's his truth. It's Scott Hall's truth. Yeah. And whether like you want to pick that apart and like his truth is to work us, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I guess you yeah. could say that about everything, but that's what's kind of interesting about documentary is this idea, you know. You know, Werner Herzog calls it um, uh, the ecstatic truth about a documentary where, you know, documentaries sort of have this like, you know, stigma <clears throat> where it has to be a listing of the facts. Like, here's a listing mm-hmm. of the facts, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, you are making a, a film and uh, this is just I don't know if this is a funny this is kind of a funny ad- anecdote to share. But like, you know, Werner Herzog has always said, like, if if like. In a documentary, if the or like in a in a piece of journalism or a book, like if the truth is the most important thing, like fa- or sorry, if facts are the most important thing about a documentary or or whatever about a book, then the Manhattan Phone Book would be the greatest book ever written, you know, because <laughs> it's you know John Smith, you know, yeah, he lives on you know West End Street and this is his phone number, right? But then the type of documentaries that you know Werner Herzog likes to make is yes. John Smith does live on this street. This is his phone number. But what are his nightmares? You know, <laughs> like that's yeah, right, right, the right. coolest way to kind of <laughs> like put it. So so for us, it's like, you know, just because we're sharing Scott Hall's sort of like bizarre take, whether it's a work or a shoot, um, doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, like, oh, yeah, like I think it's a work. So I'm going to put it in there. No, it's just to show you that this is a crazy aspect to the story that. You know, and and, mm-hmm. and 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 lastly, not to dwell on this too much, but when we put a poll up, I think we put a poll up either before the or no, like the day after or the day of the episode went up, <clears throat> and we're like, hey, do you guys think the Montreal screw job is a work or a shoot? And it was like sixty forty. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, I saw that, Paul. I thought, like, you know, before seeing the results, I was like, all right, it'll be like a nine to one ratio, something like, it's like that. 60, unless people are just, it's you know, a, ribbing us, but it was like 60 yeah. 40. I was like, what the? F- that's crazy. 
So. Well, I think also it's because enough time has passed from it where people would only get the second. Like I've spent at least 10 to 12 hours researching <laughs> it, like in terms of like listening to podcasts, reading old absurd. Yeah. Like I dove deep into this thing. So like I, my opinion is, is pretty ironclad that it is not a work. But I can see if someone who didn't really pay attention, especially in today's world where everything is a work. And like, yeah, why would anyone care about the world? You know, like it, it does. It doesn't make sense that this yeah. would be such a big deal in today's world. I could see it. But moving on, I want I want to wrap up. But sure. I, I, I do want to uh, talk about the Von Erichs and, and the Gino thing really quick with the Go Von Erich one. Uh, like you did such an amazing job because I am very familiar with the Thank Von Erich story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I watched, I believe the documentary was called Heroes of World Class. Yep. Have, you, have you seen this documentary? Absolutely. So, I love it. It's on my shelf. If, uh, I highly recommend you watch. It, it is a great addendum to, to what you did because it totally. really stretches out. But like my my one piece of feedback for that documentary was it was it was the information in it is so unreal and unbelievable and raw and the truth, but production wise, it leaves a lot to be desired. It was a little low budget. So I think you guys took uh, kind of the meatiest parts of that documentary and you created this highly engaging video piece for it. Mm. Uh, because like, like, and, and, it, it was so funny because I'm watching this and I, and I was watching with somebody else and, you know, what you, you bring up Fritz von Erich and I'm like, oh, it's so crazy because his first gimmick was like he was an actual Nazi. And then like two minutes later, you're you have a little <laughs> aside about that. And I'm like, oh, there you guys are hitting all the important parts of it. And even though I knew where the story was going, that I've heard mm-hmm. the story told. Yeah, it was like I was still like on the edge. Like I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. And the part where. I just had to get tissues because <laughs> mm. I was crying so much was hearing uh, Kevin talk about how he went into that gun store oh, and yeah. he like, yeah. stole the gun. And, and, and then the owner, like, he's like, what are you going to do about it? And the owner was just like, we love you, Kev. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh my God, like that yeah. must've been such a, like, like it's another one of those moments. What was it like? Like, it seemed like you hung out with Kevin Von Erich for quite a while. You guys have a lot of footage in there. How yeah. was that whole experience? That was definitely the most heavy duty. I would say one, uh, it's neck and neck with Gino's family, obviously, but in terms of just heavy duty um, days on, on the production. But we were fortunate enough to actually, you know, get out to Hawaii and, um, you know, spend like three or three or four days with Kevin, I think, um, on his just, you know, paradise property. His property is just jaw-dropping in terms of how amazing it is. <clears throat> and um, we, uh, it was difficult, you know. It, it was not an easy interview. Um, you know, it, it, you know, Kevin normally when he talks about this story, and he's done it a lot, <clears throat> and you could tell it's definitely like a burden on him every single time. But, you know, it, it is his story. You know, it's something that he's, you know, lived through and, and, and lives to tell. And uh, every time you see him interviewed, you know, maybe with the exception of the 30 for 30 piece, is that he's always kind of taken out of his environment and put like in a studio and like there's like mm-hmm. a backdrop, you know, and it just it's just like, right. you know, he, he'd see, he kind of like, you know, then kind of becomes more disassociated from the story and kind of tells it more like third person almost in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And with this, it was like, obviously, we wanted to really try and like, 
get the most emotional version of the story. And it was not easy. Like, you know, I remember the first few hours of doing the interview, it was almost kind of like, is this going to work? You know, and uh, just kind of keeping him focused and, 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 and willing to be kind of raw, you know, with us. And, you know, it was really the help of his sons, Ross and Marshall, who really just kind of knew what we were going for. And I think we showed Kevin the Brody trailer, too, the trailer to the Brody episode that we had at the time. And he kind of got more what we were going for and that, you know, we're not we don't have an agenda. We don't have an angle. We just want to get his story. That's all we want to do. And then, you know, he really the more time we got to actually spend with him. I'm so glad we got to spend like those three or four days because it just became easier as it went along. And obviously, it's very hard for him. He had to take breaks every, you know, every half hour just to collect himself because every story was so heavy. Um, but just the experience, like, you know, of, you know, you have to get every detail because you have to tell the story properly. But, <clears throat> you know, it's not easy when you're like, okay, let's go. Can we go back and talk about, you know, this other brother of yours and talk about, you know, what happened in more detail? And it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. Um, but... He was great. I mean, you know, he's such a nice guy, such an amazing guy. And, uh, you know, just looking through all of his family photographs and spending time with him walking on his property, seeing that he's like just surrounded by so many family members that love him, like after being through that <laughs> is just great. Yeah. Life affirming, you know, life affirming experience. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like I, that definitely comes across like uh, I'm glad that he found his peace after living through such endless tragedy. And so were, were his sons in the room the whole time? Because there was a part in the documentary where you see like a, you see like a lower third that one of his sons was mm -hmm. suggesting to him that he tell a story. Yeah, th that's what I mean. Like we basically had Marshall standing by <clears throat> for us just to kind of just help, you know, in terms of like, you know, uh, because he, he, he'll know, he knew a lot, you know, he obviously knows a lot about what his family story, you know, so, mm -hmm. you know, being there to kind of like say, well, oh, tell him about the time this happened or, or this detail. And it just by him literally just being right to my right, it just like kind of made it much more, I think, uh, I don't know, like comfortable. You know, I think it was a source of comfort to have his son there like he's telling the story to his son and me. You know, and I think it just it just made it it made the interview much more, you know, less like they're just talking to these TV people who I don't even know and I won't remember. You know, right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah that that certainly comes across his his honesty and, and it was great. And with the Gino one, mm -hmm. uh, this was the story I knew the least about, as I'm sure a lot of people yeah, for sure have. Like the only context I had. It was actually that Heroes of World Class documentary where mm, mm -hmm. they have that part about him. And I guess like there were some other world class documentaries and, and stuff. So this is the most I ever uh, learned about him. And first of all, I want to say that his mother seems like the sweetest person in yes, the world. She is. <laughs> she is. Absolutely. hundred percent. Like dude, just. And yeah, also like it, it's just like it's so striking to me how open her and some of the, these other family members in, in all the documentaries uh, how open they were to you who just a few hours ago was a complete stranger well, and, and talking about the their biggest <clears throat> insecurities or whatever. Well, it's it well that's, you know, just to comment on that. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it is a process and, you know, it's not just like, you know, you can email these people and say, "Great, I'll be there, you know, tomorrow." You know, you really have to forge a relationship beforehand. You know, you really have mm -hmm. to in order to get especially family members who aren't in this wrestling business 
you know, who aren't part of it, who are used to be doing a shoot interview or who are used to telling, you know, these type of stories. It's like, you know, a relationship that you have to develop and um, be sincere and not just be a TV person or a wrestling fan. Like you have to be a human and you have to like really um, earn their trust, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, yes, that's, that's what I mean, what it is. And, um, you know, with specifically with Gino's family, it was a you know, it was not it was a it was a process, you know, in terms of because as you can see in the documentary, they've essentially been scared to talk to anybody about this for 32 years and um you know when we first got in touch with them that was very real very very apparent that uh you know this is something they did not want to talk about and mm-hmm. um and uh really what what did it is i actually just flew out there and met with them with no cameras and just went out there on a, on a separate trip and just you know spend a day with them getting to know them you know, going out to lunch and just, you know, looking at old photographs and just telling them more about who we are, what we're doing and what we want to do. And then it, and then once we kind of established that, it was like, OK, you know, we'll come back in a month or, you know, three weeks and, and, and then we'll, we'll we'll do the interview. And Gino's mom was obviously super nervous. She'd never been on camera. She'd never done anything. But obviously you can see she was just incredible, like her storytelling ability and just her as an interview was just one of the best we did in the whole show, like, you know. Yeah, she's so, incredibly charming. Yeah, incredibly, incredibly so. So yeah, I mean, it was it's just a process with any 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 people like that. What's crazy is like you change their lives. <laughs> like there there without giving too much away, there's a story at the end that you come across that kind of convinces them of what happened to Gino. Mm-hmm. How did that person who you, you don't show on screen, you kind of blur them out. Mm. How do they know you were doing this documentary and, and get in touch with you if you feel comfortable revealing that? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously I have to keep him anonymous, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the, you know it, was, it was just like, you know, from talking to um, other people and one person goes to the next, it goes to the next, and, you know, research and, um, you know, whatever. And, and then you, you reach that person and that person, you know, can't believe you're... Uh, t- wanting to talk to them about Gino Hernandez, you know, and someone they hadn't thought about in so so many years, and um, that individual, um, you know, uh, immediately, you know, because I mean, I'm going to choose my words carefully, but basically, you know, going into this story, and I had I had heard about the the the, the rumors around Gino Hernandez's death. Pretty much from Bruce Pritchard's podcast was the first time I really heard. It was actually before I saw Heroes of World Class. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Bruce Pritchard did a phenomenal episode about his time in in working in Houston, uh, in in the in the Houston territory, and they just kind of spent about 15, 20 minutes talking about the rumors and the innuendo surrounding Gina Hernandez's death and how wild his funeral was, and they just painted such a vivid portrait of this and that to me just stuck in my brain is like when we get to do this show like this has got to be an episode we look into and so we only we, when we looked at it we only like we're operating on these rumors you know which is dangerous you know when you're when you're doing that because you might you know you might you might just find out you know there's nothing to any of this and you know you, you've wasted all these resources on it you know and uh, so what happened is when we got in touch with this individual um, and immediately noticed that I guess this is, I mean, is this a spoiler? Like, I guess 
<laughs> you can just give it away at this point. All right, People come can on. Skip yeah. ahead if they don't yeah. want it. Skip yeah. ahead, pause, go watch it. It's worth your time. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, you could tell on the other end of that phone that this individual had had a very close relationship with Gino. And it, it was like a very close friendship with him, even though they were involved in, you know, illicit drug trafficking together. But that, 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 you know, they had this bond and, you know, telling, you know, crazy wrestling road stories and things. And, and this person has nothing to do with the wrestling business, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and that was just so fascinating to be able to like talk to this person who, who's one of the only people who really can truthfully, you know, kind of establish, because a lot of these people, you know, including the family, and wrestlers, you know, we're, we're frightened of these individuals. And, you know, maybe, you know, this is another Scott Hall work. I don't know. But this, you know, pulling the wool over my eyes. But, you know, I think I'm Right, I was going to say, you believe this guy. Oh, yeah, you yeah. You believe I, No, I, I definitely do. And, and I think that it's, you know, um, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to convey in, in a 44-minute piece. Like, you know, but I've mm-hmm. had several conversations with this individual. And... Um, you know, you just don't get that sense, you know, that like this person is, is, is part of some yeah. Scarface, uh, you know, <laughs> underground organization. Right. Especially at this point, like why, why cover yeah. it up 30 years later? Yeah. And like, you know, no... he also has moved on in his life. He has a different, you know, he, 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 he has, you know, he, he's, he, he's, uh, you know, straight. He not works. a Coke dealer anymore. He's not a Coke dealer anymore. <laughs> and, you know, he has a. He has a he has a straight business now, and mm-hmm. so he doesn't you know f- for those reasons you know he wanted to you know protect you know maybe right. aspects of his story that some people aren't familiar with that are close to him or just you know you know his children and things like that. Yeah, just and protect so, his identity from that. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, that makes sense. Yeah, and even it though was just it was interesting because like, yeah. the the whole documentary you're kind of pushing me as the viewer into believing that he, not pushing I shouldn't say put but like. Oh, there's all of these questions. Like maybe he was murdered, but then it yeah. it kind of resolves itself in a way that, as the viewer, I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I know it's very. I wasn't. I mean, believe me, I was not expecting it myself <laughs> when I was making it. the 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 way the episode plays out is literally how the experience of what it was like for us to make this. Um, mm-hmm. Like it is the chronology of our experience researching the project, where you know we started. Like, if you look at the very opening of the show, it starts with, like, you know, here's a cold open on, you know, uh, how this is, like, you know, people have believed for 30 years this is a murder, right? That's what we knew going into um, the episode, like, the rumor mill, right? And then as we're getting to meet the family and sort of see their story, and they believed it, you know, they, they, they believe it 100%. And there's still obviously details that are unanswerable and a little, a little you, know, in, you know, curious, of course, Right. Um, you know, but that was really our experience. Like our experience making it was the experience you have watching it, where by the end, you know, and I mean the 11th hour of making this thing is when a lot of those details came to light. I mean, we didn't really know where this was going at all. They had no idea where it was going. I, I, I will say, like, even though it was suspect to me, ultimately that his mom felt the closure and you have that shot of her with the margarita, which <laughs> I thought was so... Yeah. So great. Uh, mm-hmm. Then I was like, well, then at least she can live her life now. You know, at least uh, his his uh, ex-wife could, like, not fear for her or her daughter's life now. So 
Uh, so it, yes. it is an, it is a, it is a, in an odd way kind of a happy ending <laughs> yeah. to this tragic story. Yeah, I mean, you know, and uh, you know, you know, she's like, you know, that experience of being able to lift that weight off of her shoulder, and I'm not trying to put myself over. <laughs> Uh, but you know, just to be able to, for us to like, you no, know, I mean, yeah, you know, for this us, is a real person with like yeah. 30 years of, yeah. Of, yeah. of weight on her shoulders that was lifted just yeah. because you guys decided to do this documentary. Yeah. I'll put you over. And, that's crazy. And, <laughs> thank you. But, but no, but, but like literally not knowing that that's what the outcome was going to be. And it's like, oh, uh, you know, when you're, when you approach this family and you're talking to them and you're bringing up all these dark memories and, you know, and, and somehow that can kind of start the you know PTSD all over again um is 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 you know you know thankfully for her she has some closure in that way um but you know obviously there's still aspects of the story to me that like get my you know I where I'll, where I'll scratch my head and you know be you know and I think a lot of the people who've watched the episode have you know are are, are noticing you know well, what's up with the autopsy report and and th- yeah that's kind of what stuck out to me too i mean you know those are things that are really hard to answer because it's just kind of you had to be there and then you know one of the other aspects that i think is talked about a lot is the uh the amount of cocaine that's in his body you know and mm-hmm. the the one thing that you have to consider too is like obviously the stuff that he was doing was probably incredibly pure you know like given the time period and the quality that was coming in from him just being like, you know, a dealer and a source of that type of stuff. Like, right. He's pretty high up the food chain probably. If oh, he's yeah. Getting it, like handed down from one person. Yeah. This is not street stuff. This is like, you know, big, mm-hmm. you know, this is like the top of the line. And so um, that and also from what I've learned, you know, as part of the decomposition process is that if that's in your system, that's going to funnel its way down into the stomach region, you know, <clears throat> and it's going to eventually get there, you know, in, in, in one way or the other. So, um, you know, and then you have to kind of take Jeannie's story into account of just like seeing him intake just days before he died, you know, taking in, you know, obscene amounts of this stuff, you know? And so it's like, <clears throat> the one thing is like, you know, and and Jake articulates this really well in the piece where he says, you know, I think it's in the very beginning. He says, you know, uh, <clears throat> I think why there's so many rumors in wrestling is because, you know, we have a lot of time on the road and we're thinking about it. and We just want to believe in these certain wilder versions of these stories. And I think a lot of that is true with this story <clears throat> where it's crazy to think that we it's not, it's not crazy to think. I'm not going to say that. But I'm going to say it's wild to think that we would rather easy. It's easier for us to believe that, you know, somebody is is murdered by cocaine, you know, versus, you know, someone who clearly had documented use of a problem, you know, overdosing from it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a much more romanticized story as well. Yeah. and And that's heavy to say, but. You know, and I'll never know for sure. And I don't think anyone will know 100% for sure unless, you know, you were somehow there. But, you know, and there are still some curious details. You know, I'm, I'm not going to discount that. But <clears throat> it is just like a wilder. It's definitely much of a wilder story to, for that to have been the case. <clears throat> and I think, honestly, the biggest disservice. And, and someone posted this on, on social media that I saw after watching it just the other night. 
which is so spot on, is somebody said, it all comes down to the cocaine that was flushed down the toilet. And it's it's very true. <clears throat> that that being the fact that the cocaine was was cleaned up is a huge disservice to the whole story, you know, in, in terms of finding out more what happened that night, you know? Um, yeah, because you don't know how much. Well, you don't know, you know, yeah, you... you, you or like how pure it was or... Yeah, because yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you don't know you, you could so many tests you could do on it, <clears throat> and 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 the fact that I think it caused a lot of people to think, well, no drugs were found at the scene, <clears throat> and not everyone know, not everybody who's part of the story knows that the drugs were flushed. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. God. So that changes the perspective. Like, how did he overdose? Why were there no drugs? Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And that's a huge kind of you know piece of the story and obviously like a wrestling referee in the 80s who's you know more used to probably flushing things down <laughs> the toilet you know mm-hmm. when you're when you're trying to protect these people uh from oh, yeah. the press and the media and everything that's a knee-jerk reaction in the wrestling business but in terms of a of a potential crime scene um it's just like the worst thing you can possibly do you know so uh i think that is a huge factor. Obviously, you know, Jeannie's story about seeing the car parked uh, for so long, for so many days. And I think her thinking something very similar coming from the wrestling business is like, well, I'm concerned about him. But then at the same time, I don't want to call the police and have them find all the cocaine that I saw him having the other night, you know, in case there, nothing is wrong. You know, and so like, you know, obviously had she done that, and I'm not trying to throw shade or anything, but because obviously, you know, you're, you're in that situation. If, if, if the police had been notified earlier, then there'd be less decomposition and then maybe an autopsy report would have yielded something different, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it sounds like there, there could be like a whole other episode just analyzing totally the <clears throat> aftermath of it, you know, like after he died. Yep. Yeah. And we actually did like a little Instagram live stream after the episode the other night talking about a lot of this stuff. And that, that's the best way to get it out is like, you know, is, is, uh, you know, because again, you only have an hour. You have an hour of TV. You know, you know what? What right. else? Do you... And it's really forty-five minutes. It's not even an hour, right? Because yeah, you gotta just pack it in for the commercial. <clears throat> but you know, I awesome. again, I, I like how people can can pick it apart and kind of theorize. You know, and you know, so it's still one of those stories. You know, if if you know, it seems like the show's doing well uh, in the ratings, and if there is interest in more episodes from vice and viceland do you have ideas of other episodes other stories you'd want to tackle yeah of course yeah i mean the list is the list is long um and of course <laughs> it just it just it just depends on you know access if you get the right people you need to talk and the family members and everything <clears throat> so you know it is is dependent so you know we are a lot of people ask us every every 10 minutes someone asks us about you know we're gonna do that we're gonna do this or we're gonna do that you know and most of the time those episodes are on the list you know but for the for the respect of the people involved in those stories you know you want to um you know you you don't want to say oh yeah we want to do that and then you know express that before you have the opportunity to kind of you know develop a relationship with the necessary parties that you need to speak about it Right, that that makes total sense. Uh, well, I look forward to hopefully more episodes of the show. Mm. The show is Dark Side of the Ring. It is on Viceland on Wednesday nights. If you can't watch it on Wednesday nights, you can go to Viceland.com. 
use your cable login, watch it there. A few of the episodes are up for free. I believe the Brody and the Montreal Screwjob one. You don't need a cable login. Or get your friend's cable login. Watch it. It's worth watching. Absolutely. Uh, Evan, any, any final words here? No, just thank you and, and thanks everybody uh, who's been tuning in and, and watching the show on TV. I mean, <clears throat> or or even watching it on, on Viceland.com. Like, that definitely helps us, anyone, in terms of a season two. So people people watching it in those ways is, is super super beneficial towards us. Um, I can't thank everybody enough for that. And uh, if you want to follow us, I mean, the plan is to be kind of dumping more behind the scenes, deleted scenes, you know, fun, cool stuff. Um, you, know, at, you know, after the season wraps, we're going to be kind of releasing some more stuff. So if you want to stay tuned with us, just um, follow us on at Dark Side of Ring on Twitter or at Dark Side of the Ring on Instagram. And you can follow all of our shit there. Awesome. Evan, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me and entering the squared circle pit. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Great talking with Evan. Once again, highly implore you, if you haven't seen these Viceland documentaries, go to Viceland.com. You need a cable login. Get one from your friend or use your own. And you can watch all of the episodes. A few of them actually do not require a cable login. The Montreal Screwjob episode and the Bruiser Brody one. Uh, I can't recommend them enough. They're so well done. Very, very unique and exciting way to tell these stories. And great. And speaking of storytelling... WWE Money in the Bank was yesterday. It was the same night as the Game of Thrones finale. <laughs> so it was a little uh, a little disrupted viewing for me. Typically, I, I can't imagine many things that would disrupt me from watching pro wrestling because of the fandom that I have. Uh, but Game of Thrones is one of the few. I was watching Money in the Bank live. Then as soon as 9 o'clock Eastern hit, pause, turn on Game of Thrones, and boom. And I want to thank WWE they were doing their whole women's segment on Money in the Bank. And it ended like perfectly right before Game of Thrones. Very nice of them to do that. Uh, I thought the storytelling in the women's segments was great. The women's Money in the Bank match was awesome. Great spots. Great ending. I was rooting for Bailey to, to win. Bailey kind of needed a bit of a soft reboot, I feel, after all the ways she's been mishandled in the last year. And it was cool that the crowd, which was pretty hot and not like, it was like one of those crowds that kind of goes with the WWE uh, division. Like they rooted for the faces and, and booed the heels as opposed to like a smarter crowd like you would get in Brooklyn that would kind of root for whoever they wanted. So it was cool to see Bailey getting the support from the crowd. And I kind of figured because of the whole Becky two belt situation, it just left itself open to a Money in the Bank cash-in at the end of those two matches. And I figured if they were going to do them two in a row, maybe it wouldn't happen, but if they would have saved it for the end of the night, maybe it would have. But I was wrong. They did do them two in a row. First of all, the Lacey Evans match was just like, come on. Why was Lacey Evans put in that position? I do not know. She did okay, but it really could have been anybody else. The ending was ugh. But then the Charlotte match was awesome. It was great. Charlotte and Becky are two women that know what they're doing. Put on a great match. The ending, while I was like, I groaned a little, I liked the ending of the match in the sense of I liked that Lacey at least came out and got a little bit of revenge. And it's a way for Becky to stay on Raw and continue her feud with Lacey and not look weak in losing to Charlotte. And so she lost the match to Charlotte. 
And uh, then they decided to attack Becky. And I was just like, all right, well, I guess there's no cash in. But I was wrong because they it, it started going on for so long that I'm like, all right, someone has to come out and save Becky. And even the crowd knew who this person who was going to come out to save her would be because they started chanting Bailey. And then Bailey cashed it in. And look, even though it didn't make any sense that the bell rang before Charlotte was even on her feet, where typically they allow the uh, champion in these Money in the Bank defenses to at least get to their feet before ringing the bell. But I guess they just wanted to make it clear that Bailey is winning this one. And then the crowd reaction really made it for me. I was very, very happy for Bailey. Very happy that the crowd was happy about it. <laughs> and at that point, I thought the the show was all right. I didn't really like the Shane versus Miz steel cage match. I thought it went on a little too long. And the thing that bummed me out the most at the end of it was that it almost seemed clear that their feud wasn't over because Shane just barely escaped. So that kind of sucks. But uh, Meltzer is saying that Shane might be moving on to a new program where it's him and Elias versus Roman Reigns, which, like, who the hell wants to see that? I don't know. I don't know what they're doing there. And Roman Reigns is apparently going to be on both shows thanks to the wildcard thing because of the rating situation now. So you have that to look forward to. Overall, just that program has been so weak. Uh, the Cruiserweight match, just of all the Cruiserweight matches to put on the main show that they've had over the years... This was not the one to do it, I thought. This absolutely belonged on the pre-show. The Daniel Bryan and Rowan match versus the Usos should have been on the main show. But it was what it was. It it was there. Tony Nese retained. Nobody really cared. Uh, some, I'm trying to think of some of the other matches that might have been all right. The U.S. title match was what it was. It was just really an angle. I'm digging the angle. I'm digging the whole storyline. And I, I just want to see Samoa Joe and Rey Mysterio have you know, an actual match. Uh, the AJ Styles versus Seth Rollins match was pretty good. I will say the problem, I didn't have a problem with it. My problem, the problem on me, was that this happened immediately after Game of Thrones, so I kind of spent the first half of the match just on my social media looking at reactions to Game of Thrones. But they had a great match. The ending was really cool. And I hope that they... Uh, they work together some more, but it, it kind of looks like Seth's moving on to a program with the winner of the Money in the Bank. And I thought this Money in the Bank match was excellent. I was kind of passing out as, as it was starting because it was getting a little later in the night because, again, I had that whole hour and a half interlude of watching Game of Thrones. And I was a little worried I wouldn't be able to stay up, but the match absolutely kept my interest. I was super duper into it. And uh, somebody already had tipped me off that the, the ending was unique, but they didn't exactly tell me what it was. I wasn't looking for anything, but then, of course, as Ali is going up to grab the briefcase, I'm like, well, it can't be Ali. I, I just don't imagine them giving it to him. He hasn't had enough of a push. I assumed it was going to be Drew McIntyre was my favorite to win, which I would have been fine with, or at worst, Baron Corbin, based on the type of push they've been giving him, which I would not have been all right with. Especially since he won uh, last year or the year before. He won two years ago and it sucked. Uh, but it wasn't any of them. Uh, all of a sudden, Brock's music hits. Brock runs out, knocks Ali over, and he wins the match. I guess for initial shock value, it was all right. But I hated it. And let me tell you why I hated it. I hated it because, not because it was Brock. Well, partially because, like, I, th I think where they're going with this is Brock is going to cash in 
the briefcase for a world title match at Super or a universal title match at the Super Showdown in Saudi Arabia. Why did Brock need a Money in the Bank to do that? They could have just set up that match without the Money in the Bank. The Money in the Bank, I feel, is best served when an upper mid-carder wins it and uses it to win the title to elevate themselves into the main event. It could have been easily way better utilized uh, for someone like Finn Balor or Andrade. Uh, Randy Orton doesn't need it. You know, like one of those guys, Ricochet, I would have loved if he would have had it, but... Or even Ali, but it, I guess it wasn't in the cards. This is how they want to do the story. And to me, Brock running out after these seven guys absolutely killed themselves, and Brock running out and just kind of stealing the 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 money in the bank briefcase, it just reminds me of when they have like these long matches on Raw that go back and forth and are like 40 minutes long, and then at the end, Triple H or somebody comes out and like it's a disqualification and then it's like well what's the what was the point of having this long 40 minute match if you're just not going to have a conclusive finish just get to the finish so that kind of bummed me out about it but overall I will say Money in the Bank was a thumbs up show both ladder matches absolutely delivered uh, but I can't imagine it being the best show this week because double or nothing the long awaited uh, I guess first official AEW show is this Saturday in Las Vegas. It's going to be on pay-per-view. Pay-per-view is now cheap. It's going to be 50 bucks, but I am going to order it because, uh, look, I I support this company. I feel like there needs to be competition in the pro wrestling world, and if they want to charge 50 bucks, you know what? This first time around, they can have my 50 bucks because I want AEW to succeed. The main event Chris Jericho versus Kenny Omega. Guaranteed to be a good match. Dustin Rhodes versus Cody Rhodes. Could go either way. Their match with WWE was all right. This could be either way. I think it's going to be good. Young Bucks versus Lucha Brothers. Guaranteed to be great. Uh, there's going to be Best Friends versus Jack Evans and Angelico. Going to be great. So glad for Jack Evans and Angelico to have this spotlight on them. SCU against... Uh, three wrestlers from OWE in China. That's going to be awesome. Shima is one of the all-time greats. Uh, there's going to be two great women's matches. Let's see what other matches are there. Pac versus Hangman has been canceled now because of some contract issue or like a dis dispute is a strong word. Just Pac doesn't want a job. He doesn't want to lose a match because he's a world champion in Dragon Gate and he doesn't want to take any losses while being that champion. So that kind of ruined their plan so they decided to change it up so now there's a bit of a surprise there like who's gonna face hangman page should be curious either way it's gonna be a fun weekend because also there's in addition to double or nothing there's the weekend event of starcast which is just non-stop podcast recordings and, and live events and really cool talks and panels and you can go to starcast.com for all of those i'm that is how i'm spending my memorial day weekend is glued to my television screen for the most part hopefully getting some beach time if it's warm enough hopefully you'll have a fun memorial day we'll be back soon with more squared circle pit and i always always enjoy hearing any feedback you might have on the show or on my thoughts i am rob injection on all social media instagram facebook twitter squared circle pit is on facebook give us a searchy search and on twitter it's squared circle no e in circle pit squared circle pit no e in circle thank you again and i'll see you next time <laughs>